just type in nipple, right? Images of nipples. Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast, brought to you by Lending Club. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law, located, of course, in an abandoned Toys R Us. I'm your host, Troy Sennett, former White House speechwriter and occasional model for plastic surgeons before pictures. And I am joined, as always, by the Circe and Daenerys of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, how are we doing? Spring semester coming to a close, finally ridding yourselves of those pesky students. Now, John, now, now. I was just teaching Roman law. Uh, of course you were. Of course you were. Okay, so uh, let me we ask did you this. No riparian rights today. We were doing Fortum, Mandate, and Partnership. No riparian rights. Well, I hope they got a refund. Well, we did that earlier. We did that earlier. Let me ask you both this. So you've got a lot of years in the classroom between the two of you. Weirdest thing you've ever had happen in a class? Oh, hmm. my God. Huh, Richard, well, Richard's been teaching. Let's for the record. I, yeah, I've been teaching way more longer than me. Way, yeah, way. But, it, but oh. if the question is weirdest thing that's happened, I feel like your years oh, at Berkeley I, ought to count double. That might John. be true. That I, might I, be. I, no, look, I mean, the most weird things that happened in my. Oh yes, I will tell you the one that happened to me because I was the sole author of said story. This is a true story. <laughs> it was my first year of teaching. I was teaching future interest, and I was asking somebody a very vital social public policy question of who was the life and being for the purposes of the rule against perpetuities. Um, and it turned out he was, but he couldn't quite figure that out. And so what I'm sitting there is I was in a, we were in a science lab and what I do is I'm sitting on the desk and then impulsively as I get more and more frustrated, what happens is that I start climbing on the desk and I stand up there and keep moving back and forth and then finally he keeps getting it wrong and I jump off from the back end of the desk and I hit one of these double doors. I go flying out into the hallway and the door shuts behind <laughs> but and i mean and then oh, I i've had, heard rumors of this this is actually a true story it's a very true oh story. i've heard i thought that people made this up about you no that no you threw, that you threw yourself out of your own classroom well i i, I there are plenty I, of volunteers who'd love to help <laughs> no i mean that but you can only do that when you're 25 uh, now that i'm more than three times my age when i started teaching i'm sorry to say um i engage in much more routine types of of situations, and I have nothing to report except some of the very difficult stumpers that I give in either Roman law or in banking regulation, and I try to persuade the students that they are essentially the same course. John, you have anything to match physically propelling yourself no, out of your own I classroom? I can't actually. My I can't classes imagine are kind the- of boring. Really? I can't imagine throwing myself out of my own I classroom. I didn't do it purposely. <laughs> I did it. Some of those doors and out I went tumbling. The door slammed behind me. There were 90 students. Wait, did the they lock so you couldn't get back in? Get that would have been priceless. One of them mercifully opened up the door. And now, John, the question <laughs> is, do you know what a life and being is for the purpose of the rule against perpetuity? I skipped. I know that on the bar exam to skip all future interest questions because they slow you down and you'll get them wrong in any way. No, no, no. Don't start talking about future interests or this yeah. podcast is over. Good good job, John. John Manning, the hot gates of the podcast there. Can I at least say the rule against perpetuity? As concisely as possible, Richard. It hurts. No interest must vest, will vest, unless it must vest, if at all, within a life and being, plus 21 years with allowances for periods of gestation. John Chipman J. Great. Well, see, John, I think we're all better off for having heard that. <laughs> all right, boys. I mean, I mean, there would have been something interesting in my classroom if I tried to teach that because there would have been suicides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So great. This, this month, uh, we get to start with something other than Mueller because we, we finally entered into a new era of civic tranquility in America. So now we're just fighting about abortion. Um, proximate cause of this fight. You have a piece of legislation that just passed in Alabama. In fact, the governor signed it about an hour before we're recording this. Bans abortion in pretty much all cases except serious health risks to the mother and would be a class A felony subject to 99 years in prison. 
for the offending doctor. And this is right on the heels of Georgia passing a law that would ban abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So you're talking around the six-week window. Now, these are obviously going to be challenged in court. That's obviously the point. But before we even get into this sort of present controversy, can we do a bit of table setting? Um, because Richard, abortion is not at present the sole providence of the states. The federal government sets parameters within which the states have some flexibility on what they want abortion policy to look like. So why don't you just start by walking us through what the status quo looks like and how we got there? Well, it got there in one fell swoop in a case called Roe v. Wade, which was decided in January of 1973. Uh, before the case had come down, everybody assumed that there were abortion laws in 50 states, some by statute, some by kind of common law situations, and that the effort of Roe to upset the statute was regarded as one of the great quixotic ventures of all time. Comes to the Supreme Court and Harry Blackman, fresh from his time at the Mayo Clinic, decides to divide all the world into trimesters. Essentially, in the first trimester, what happens is that there's no real protection that you can give to the fetus. And then in the middle period, it turns out that you get some protection with respect to certain kinds of activities that are going on in terms of medical interventions. But as I recall the rule, you're not under these circumstances allowed to essentially prohibit abortion. And then only in the last um, trimester where you're at a level of viability, um, is there robust protection that is afforded uh, to the infant? This is very different from the traditional rules. There was no precedent for it, and there was an instantaneous class warfare. There were some people who said this decision is an intellectual monstrosity. We don't even know what clause of the Constitution it rests on. Is it privacy? Is it equal protection? Is it this? Is it that? And there are other people saying, look, it turns out that this is yet another important victory in the battle for women's rights to control the determination of their own bodies. Uh, certain decisions like Brown v. Board of Education, once they were put into place, there was obviously some degree of resistance. But I don't think there was anybody who said we really have to turn this thing back. The fight after 1954 was trying to figure out how it is that you implement this system in a way that doesn't disrupt the entire fabric of the United States. But there was no turning back. With Roe, it never gained that kind of legitimacy uh, because all the democratic pressures were going in the opposite direction. And since that time, we've had all sorts of skirmishes about what kinds of regulations that you can put into place on a thousand different subjects, including, for example, the question, what do you do with infant abortions? Can you show women pictures of fetuses before you're allowed to do an abortion? It was a case called Casey, I think it was about 1992 or 1993, where somebody come along and says, you know, we really have to reconsider this case. And in the end, the Supreme Court did not. Uh, so if you wanted to say what the current table looks like, I think a very useful summary statistic, and I'll end on this, is as follows. If you ask most people about abortion, two-thirds of the people think that it's a moral wrong, and about two-thirds of the people in this country think that it ought to be legal. Obviously, that means that there's a third somewhere in the middle that has both moral objections and legal protections with respect to abortions. And it's that tension which is being played out in the Georgia and the Alabama statutes. John, obviously, the whole point here is that with the composition of the Supreme Court having changed, you've got people uh, testing the fences, to use a Jurassic Park reference, to see where the new <laughs> limits might be. So this bill out of Alabama is kind of the maximalist position in, well, not kind of. It really is. In terms of strategy, in terms of how I maximize my chances to potentially get what I want out of the Supreme Court, is it a help or a hindrance to go that hardcore as opposed to maybe trying to push out at the edges of what existing law allows? I, I think that's a great question, Troy. I think it's a mistake to rush forward uh, for a few reasons. So one is it's just a state of uncertainty at the court. As you said, there's been a sharp change in the composition of the court and the the current test although i don't i think this test will be tossed out is called the undue burden test you know does some state regulation create an undue burden uh, for a woman to exercise her right to an abortion that test was created by justice o'connor and then uh, continued on by justice kennedy uh, they're both gone so if you were the uh, pro-life people you're saying oh well Let's give it a shot. There's no uh, the undue burden test is probably done because it's pro, you know the main promoters of it are gone. Uh, the four liberal justices 
Ian Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, they'll stick to the undue burden test, but you know they're not going to be the key votes. So why not give it a shot? Um, the problem, I think, the reason that I think caution would be better um, is because you can't really tell what Chief Justice Roberts is going to do. You know, Chief, uh, I think uh, many people assumed before he was nominated to the Supreme Court that he was probably uh, pro-life, um, but he's also uh, the Chief Justice, and in case after case, he's been concerned about maintaining uh, precedent. Uh, he's been concerned, although there's this weird case that came down just uh, two days ago uh, about California versus Nevada, where the five conservatives actually pretty blithely tossed aside precedent. But, uh, you know, the chief justice seems to not want to get the court in the middle of politics. Uh, you remember that he upheld the Obamacare statute, provided a fifth vote to the liberals, even though I think uh, he knew on the merits that the statute was unconstitutional because he didn't want the court to be a political issue during an election campaign. Well, one way to make sure you're a political issue during a political, you know, political issue during a presidential campaign would be to take up this law and laws like it uh, next year during the middle of uh, 2020. If there, as if there weren't enough issues that we would have to think about during a presidential election year. So I, I don't see why the pro-life forces, right? The membership of the court is not going to get worse for them in the next few years. So why not wait? You know, wait and see how things develop. They might get another seat. Justice Ginsburg might retire. They might get another seat. They, uh, the elections might go their way. Um, but I don't. I think it's a political. If you're not political, if you think about constitutional litigation strategy, I think it's a mistake to try to rush the ball, you know, up the middle on the kickoff rather than just going slowly down the field, doing what they have been doing, like the partial birth abortion ban. You know, reasonable restrictions on abortion that uh, get the support of the majority of the American people. That makes it easier for the courts to go along. So I, I, I could see this. This is a, a, I think this is a, a bad, not bad, but I think this is a, a misjudgment that's really gambling and could really backfire if Chief Justice Roberts is forced to say, like he did in Obamacare, I'm going to be the fifth vote to hold Roe and Casey because I don't want the court to be a political football in the 2020 presidential elections. Look, I... I'm going to go one step further than John, which is there's nothing which says that the Supreme Court has to take this case. So what you do is you start looking at the situation. You send it into district courts, into circuit courts, and all of them regard themselves as bound by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, what they're going to do is to say whatever our private views on the constitutionality of this issue, there's a higher power there. You get nine decisions, all of which essentially strike down both of these statutes. And then somebody says, why should we take this thing? It's a political football and there's no conflict across the circuits. And so therefore, what we do is we let this ride. So I think it's actually a mistake even to believe uh, that this thing is necessarily going to be something which will tee itself up to the Supreme Court. If they had taken the more gradualist approach and there had been some reasonable arguments under current law both ways, then you might have been able to get that uh, incremental gain. So I think that's what's likely to happen is that, uh, if anything, this will solidify Roe. It will show that lower courts are right comfortable behind it. Some of these judges will write stirring declarations about how it is that Roe is not just stare decisis, but it's this wonderful, positively uh, important social decision. I would never have done this kind of thing. It's also, by the way, I think something else that's going on here is it is going to have political consequences. Uh, the polarization in the United States in terms of political processes is already very alarming. As a rough rule of thumb, there is no overlap today between the most a liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat. And when you have a decision like this, it's just going to reinforce the party lines, making it harder to find compromise positions in the middle. And so I think that this is the thing is a mistake. And just for the record, um, I actually wrote one of the articles, God, it's a long time ago, saying why it was I thought that Roe was wrong back in 1973. Uh, the most famous article was written by John Hart Ely, and I thought it was a wrong approach. He said this is an institutional 
moral competence issue and the Supreme Court ought not to be making these decisions. I went through the police power arguments and said that essentially abortion falls within the core values of the health and safety issues having to do with the fetus and that the decision was wrong on substantive grounds and that even though Lochner was rightly decided, in my view, Roe was wrongly decided. But you get stare decisis and you get long situations. So the other point, which is does the recent decision in California on state sovereignty, is that going to say something about this case? And the Democrats are all at a Twitter now thinking that if you're willing to overrule one particular case, you're willing to overrule another case. They should have thought about that when they all voted for Obergefell, which is exactly the same kind of dramatic change in previous situations. So there's a lot to criticize on the part of both parties and both factions on this particular case. John, was it a a good thing or a bad thing for the conservative legal movement, I guess really the conservative political movement, to have put Roe so front and center in the way that we talk about the, the courts? By which I mean that one can imagine if we go to the scenario that you laid out where maybe it does get to the court and they don't overturn it, one can imagine sort of widespread conservative dissatisfaction saying, well, what what did we spend all these election cycles voting for people who would appoint the right judges for when you've got all these other accomplishments that you can point to? It's a nice point because Roe isn't important in and of itself. I mean there are people for whom uh, abortion or the pro-life question, it overrides uh, everything. But I think really – uh, Roe stands for an attitude towards the role of the courts, and it would be better to focus right. on that rather than on abortion because you could uh, you, know, you could have a difference on uh, abortion as a matter of policy but still um, disagree with the fact that Roe – that the court decided Roe the way it did. So as you say, the thing that um, people dis- uh, disliked about the Roe in terms of the attitude was this um, – sort of hijacking of the idea of the due process clause, you know, which sounds like a procedural protection and turning it into a substantive protection without really any explanation from the court about how it figures out what rights should be substantive due process rights and what rights aren't. You know, this is an area probably where Richard and I probably disagree. I think certainly probably, disagree. <laughs> you know, would see more substantive rights there, uh, I would not locate them in the due process clause, and we might argue about which rights they are. I mean, I don't deny there are some unenumerated rights. I would think they're really in the privileges and immunities clause, not the due process. But this is where Richard and I would disagree. But I, but you know that that attitude of a kind of freewheeling uh, right of the court to sort of study the country and to identify norms that it feels the country holds, and then to impose them by judicial fiat rather than the political process. That's what Roe really represents, and it was it didn't have to be abortion that was the issue that brings it to the fore, but makes it so symbolic. Um, it could, you know, gay marriage, Obergefell, gay marriage could be uh, the same thing too. Uh, although, you know, the one difference is I think public attitudes have really shifted heavily in favor of gay marriage, and you don't really, I don't think, see a big groundswell for Obergefell to be. Overturned, and if it were, I think most states would immediately pass laws uh, allowing gay marriage. Abortion isn't like that. If I, I, the last time I looked, I think the country was, uh, you know, there was no majority view. The plurality, though, there were more people pro-life than pro-choice now in the country. But you know, the moderates in the middle hold the decisive view, and they sort of are kind of where the court is. You know, uh, there should be a right to abortion, but it should have uh, sensible restrictions. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's the, right? I mean, what's the, you know, that's the hill to die on, as it were, for the conservative legal movement. It's more important to, right, get get judges on the court who respect a more moderate role for the court in society. See, that's where John and I disagree, and I think fairly profoundly. Uh, We both think that Roe was wrong. John takes the institutionalist approach that we just don't want courts messing around with issues of this size. My view is if you have very broad and powerful constitutional protections, either procedural or substantive, you have to make do of it. But let's suppose, for example, that we do switch this to privileges and immunities, and what we then discover is it only applies to citizens. It doesn't apply to all persons. Uh, That leads you to be – then you have to ask whether or not this is a privilege or immunity, uh, which was traditionally recognized. If you do that, essentially abortion comes up a blank, even under privileges and immunities.
opportunities given the pervasive history of regulation under the yes. power forward. So, uh, yes. But with Lochner, of course, it's a very different situation. And if you read the opinion, uh, what our friend Peckham was very concerned about was a very different issue, which was if you read the police power so broadly that there was nothing left to any substantive characteristic on liberty. If you recall, Lochner did not create freedom of contract as a doctrine. There was an earlier case, widely accepted, also I think written by Peckham, called Al Geyer against uh, Louisiana, uh, which essentially says that when you talk about liberty under the uh, due process clause, it doesn't mean the ability to move around only. It also covers economic liberties, and that was a case in which there was a wholly arbitrary limitation on the ability of people from out of state to sell policies over the indirectly in the state of Louisiana, and he says, well, you can't do that. Lochner comes along, and there's a serious question when you're regulating bakers whether this is or is not a health measure, and that was the battle that went on there, and the way in which it came down, there were three positions. The first one was the position that our friend Peckham took, which is that I've looked at this long and hard. There may be some health issues in these cases, but the really key thing that's going on here is you've got a bunch of union bakers going through the legislature to try to basically impose criminal sanctions on their rivals, non-union bakers. And it therefore, under this view, is very instructive that it was Lochner against New York, a criminal protest where there was no evidence whatsoever that any of the bakers involved in this situation thought they had anything other than a good deal. And then there was the learned John Marshall Harlan, the older man, and he just went back to every baking regulation statute in France in 1614 and said, to me, this looks as though it's a serious health measure. So that was the battle between those two guys. I tend to think Peckham was right on this one. But Justice Holmes comes up and he says, his analysis in full reads, this measure could be justified on the score of health. What he really meant is, I don't care whether it's a health issue or not. I think it's all a question of legislative determination. And I've been on the Peckham side of this issue, so I actually have a completely different way on this. I think what the courts ought to do is to reaffirm that substantive guarantees under the Constitution do matter, but that the equal importance of the police power matters as well. And so that the key question then becomes to figure out, A, what's the liberty, and then B, what are the particular restraints upon them? I do think, in effect, that in most cases, the tort law gives you a pretty good guide. If you start having harms against third persons, the creation of nuisances, that's the kind of thing that the state could regulate. Nobody has the right to manufacture fertilizer if it's going to make everybody else die. Uh, Troy and I did a section on vaccinations yesterday on the libertarian. And oh, it was you, and a, si, you and you and Troy were vaccinating each other. Did I? Did I, I, I yeah, well, I that right. this is amazing. Wow! Near either of you, to either of you, with sharp objects in your no, hands. Would not, I, and I wouldn't trust me. With this. And Jason Riley wrote about it this morning in the Wall Street Journal. He says uh, there is no religious exemption when there's a contagion risk. Is essentially the position. Oh, really, and, can I, Richard? Can I ask you? So you think there's no. Uh, substantive due process right um, to prevent the government from sticking a needle in you against oh. your wishes? Oh, like there's no I mean, spotly no, integrity. No, no, no. Uh, I think so. No, you're a libertarian, though. No, I look. No, I'm a I'm a classical liberal. Let me put it more precisely. Uh, prima facie, I think there's such a right, but as in the traditional police power case, it can be overcome to the extent you're trying to prevent harms to others. And just give you one simple harm: uh, you cannot vaccinate newborns, and they can certainly die of measles. And so, if you have a population such as the Orthodox Jews in New York which has a very low vaccination rate, you're going to get a very sharp increase. So in why, can't, why isn't the better thing not to say uh, the state has a right to puncture your skin with a needle when you don't want it, rather that you could just say, well, the state, if you refuse to take the vaccine, then the state can exclude you from public places. You can't go to school, and we're not going to treat you in hospitals. If well, you you know, sit, you're going to make that choice, then you don't get any free no, stuff. I, I mean, or look, we can actually, you know, we're, but John, I'm I regard that as it would allow, uh, that, that is would allow invasion of physical privacy. Just as a libertarian, I'm not a libertarian. No, I am, but look, I mean, as a, as a classical liberal, this means, in effect, this completely unworkable. What are you going to tell people? You haven't gotten vaccinations. You can't go on the public streets you can't go anywhere no, yeah, on can't the public streets and so you're yeah, basically prisoners streets. in your home and now they start sneaking out nowhere. 
uh, you essentially what happens is if you're trying to put time, place, and manner decision, it's like putting everybody who doesn't get vaccines into quarantine, and you're going to have to have hundreds of people like that, and it's simply just infeasible, and it's not going to be perfect anyhow. Why is that? You cannot go into the public streets, uh, but somebody else in your family may be able to go into the public street, or an infant comes into your house and gets the disease, and that person then transfers it to somebody else. If you start looking at the epidemiology of this, uh, the great problem about this is a very small number of people can create an enormous amount of mayhem in the lives of others. So we have your solution there, and somebody does not know that a person is not vaccinated, is carrying the measles virus, a child gets it, then goes home to kindergarten, and 100 people get it. There is no So you can make the rule, everyone who enters a house where someone won't get vaccinated can't leave that house about again. Police state, you can't. It's just, <laughs> it's just so. Yeah. What happens is, I mean, look, I'm all in favor of quarantines under some circumstances. Yeah. It's a very famous California case. I think it's favorite called Juho about the quarantine of the Chinese quarter in um, San Francisco yeah. around the turn of the last century, 1900. And this was supposed to be a quarantine, but there was only one difficulty with this particular quarantine. It turns out that white people were allowed to enter the San Francisco Chinese community, but the Chinese people were not allowed to leave it. So a judge says, that's not a quarantine. This is just a restraint on that was just, yeah, that, But that's and, easy. But that's, that's just racial. Line, the, the that's just is, racial. That's the whole point, is if it were bona fide a quarantine, then it would be upheld under the police power. If it's essentially this kind of a racial dispute that's going on, it's going to be struck down, which means that you can draw workable lines if you care to do it. If you want to make sure that the mission fails, John, I'm sure you could throw enough uh, sand in the gears. But if you want to make it succeed and you start looking at the categories, what you do is you realize that the so-called non-aggression... Oh, look, look, I'm not a libertarian, so I, I, I agree with you. I think actually okay. the state can I'm a, I'm require vaccinations. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I just... I'm a classical... I, I'm not a libertarian of the strong sense. Um, and, you know, if you listen to the show that I did yesterday, you know, I, I went on at great length. Why it is something <laughs> well, listen, like Rand Paul? John Richard is assigning you've done it on two shows now. Series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rand Paul, just simply, you know, the problem about libertarians is they're right about freedom, but they're wrong about police power. And if you get half the constitutional synthesis wrong, it's like getting the whole thing wrong. <laughs> All right, fellas, I got it. We ended up on a different continent there. So it was good. It was edifying, but I got to pull okay. this out. Um, so I, I said we didn't have to start with Mueller this time around, which didn't mean that we had to, we got to ignore it entirely, partially because our own John Yu has been chiming in on this on the pages of The Washington Post. So since we've last convened, of itself. <laughs> we've had the House Judiciary Committee leaning on Attorney General Barr to release the, the full unredacted version of the Mueller report. Barr's refused to do that. He said it'd be essentially illegal. So the House is moving towards holding Barr in contempt. John, you said in the post piece that the House should be careful what they wish for here, that this could boomerang on them. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, because the House and Trump, both of them are kind of rushing to court. And it's not clear to me that the court is going to be on the House's side. So usually, uh, you know, I've worked on this when I was in a staffer in the Senate, and I worked on these issues when I was a staffer in the Justice Department. Usually you have months and months of negotiations and accommodations to try to figure out a way where the executive branch in the end gives the material to the Congress, but with certain kinds of conditions on access and copying and how much of it, so on and so forth. Um, Usually only after that process breaks down, which can sometimes take a year, then you might go to court to resolve the areas where you still have disagreement. That's one. Secondly, so they're all rushing the court. Uh, clearly, both sides think they're going to win. They both have legitimate interests. The Congress has the right to conduct oversight uh, on the spending of money, the operation of the laws. The executive branch has a right to keep confidential certain kinds of communications and documents, primarily those involving the president and his advisors and law enforcement and military national security issues. It's not that both either side's right or wrong. It's just that they both have legitimate interests. How, so the question is how do you resolve a conflict between the branches? So the lower courts uh, have allowed 
Congress to sue the executive branch in this kind of civil proceeding, not criminal. They can try criminal, but that's going to fail because the Justice Department is the one who prosecutes the criminal case. They're not going to prosecute the attorney general. Uh, the attorney general is the head of the Justice Department. He can just say, no, we're not going to bring the case. So you got to have a civil case. Um, the, the thing about the civil case is the Supreme Court itself has never really a blessed the civil case. So it could be that the courts could just say, ah, we're out of here. Why should we resolve this dispute when the president and the Congress have all kinds of tools at their own disposal to fight with each other? And then lastly, suppose the court does, Supreme Court does take the case. It's not entirely clear to me that they're going to read the right of executive privilege narrowly as it was in U.S. versus Nixon, the Watergate tapes case. There's a lot of claims of privilege here that the executive branch could win on that could expand executive privilege. So, for example, Nixon itself, the privilege is primarily communications between the president and his advisors. But in the years since, the executive branch has also claimed executive privilege exists over what it calls deliberative process, where uh, discussions about policy within the executive branch. It also has claimed uh, a law enforcement privilege, you know, the Documents here that are being sought here, the investigatory files of the Mueller investigation would be would fall into there. Um, so you could easily see the Trump administration say, hey, you want to go to court? Yeah, let's go to court. Not only are we going to go to court, we're going to try to expand executive privilege beyond what the Supreme Court has recognized in the past. The reason I game it out that way, just like we're counting votes on um, Roe versus Wade, think about the five justices in the conservative majority right now. John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh were lawyers in the White House counsel's office whose primary job was to fight on executive privilege issues. They will, pri- they will be extremely sympathetic to Trump. Then Neil Gorsuch was in the Bush Justice Department at the time they were defending on executive privilege. I can't really see Justice Alito, who was a U.S. attorney, and Justice Thomas, who has written some very broad executive power cases, voting in favor of a narrow view of executive privilege. So I think if you were the Trump administration, you're like, sure, let's go to court. Let's bring it on. This might be the best chance, the best set of facts and the best chance they have to go for a really broad view of executive privilege against what is clearly, I think, an overbroad request by the House. Um, John's column is obsolete. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is from the guy who is – the Roman law principles are timeless. The problem uh, with John's is, column is that he did not have a, Let me explain to you why it is. This is a compliment, John, that your column is obsolete. Um, not that I didn't say it was wrong. Right, I said it was obsolete. Oh, oh I don't care then, actually. Well, what I meant is <laughs> right. the letter which came out today—a a, fifteen-page, a twelve-page doozy written by Pat Chipolone, counsel to the president, sent off to Mister Nadler, which goes in great detail into what he thinks is everything wrong. It is a totally devastating letter um, because it goes into much greater particularity into all of these issues than was, was before. Very accurate with respect to the case citations. It what it says. Is in effect, the reason that John's column is obsolete is that we now have official confirmation that the White House is on to every issue that he raised in his column, an excellent column, and all the other stuff that's raising. I actually wrote something, too, on this for the Hoover website, and, and I had a slightly different take but completely complementary to yours, uh, which is what you actually have to do is to go back and read the United States against Nixon to see the way in which the things go. And Nadler's view about it is he reads the opinion as saying there's no such thing as executive privilege, which is crazy. Uh, the opinion essentially starts with exactly the opposite position. It says there is an executive privilege. There are two very powerful interests that support it, confidentiality and separation of powers, both of which are implicated in this case. But given the fact that Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator and that everybody knew that the tapes had taken conversations involving him and the indicted co-conspirators, the claim for relevance was absolutely powerful and that given the specificity of the request, uh, the need to keep this thing out was absolutely minimal. And so what they said is you've got to show that these things are specific. You have to show that they're relevant. You have to show that they're admissible. All three things are done. Now what you do is you move into this 
legislative situation. You have no idea what you're looking for. If you actually look at the letter that was written by Chip alone, he gives a sense of what the size of the request was, how many hundreds of witnesses, how many millions of documents you're asking. He also says, by the way, you've already gotten millions upon millions of documents from us. This is just a witch hunt. We're not going to play. I have no question that if the simple question were, is this an excessive and abusive and oppressive subpoena? The answer is yes. Um, And so if you then say, is it appropriate for somebody to demand that you either change the law by getting a court to unseal these things? That can't be the job of the executive to do that. Um, So you're asking the president and his advisors to commit illegal actions given confidential information with the grand jury. My view about this is I think Nadler is actually going to essentially slow walk the thing from here out because I think he finally understands that the utterly incompetent representations that he has made on these things are not sustainable in any court by any judge with any political variance whatsoever. It is really quite striking that if you read you know, the reckless Trump White House with all these desperados and madmen, they are so professional compared to um, a guy like um, Nadler who writes something. He says it. All that has happened in this particular case is that the president has stonewalled Congress and has given them no information whatsoever. As Chip Malone said, all this stuff is just demonstrably false. I think he's got to be crazy if he wants to go ahead with this. I really do hope that he tries to go to court and get these papers because it would be a great pleasure to see him amputated at the neck with respect to what's going on in this particular case. This is really absolute beyond the reason. And in fact, one of the things that Chip Malone does is he gives all of the future additional accommodations that they were prepared to make. And so even if you wanted to do the argument, we go to court after there's an impasse. What happens is he's indicated the concessions he's willing to make. What has happened is there's not been a single concession that Nadler has been willing to make on this stuff. I regard this as one of the most one-sided issues in the history of the United States Supreme Court and everything else on executive privilege. Me, I just think it's completely. Let me, let me give the let me give the Congre- Congress side because there's you know there's there I don't think it would be an overwhelming victory for Trump either. I think um, one thing that's also clear. Uh, although I think Nadler is, is sort of so interested in the politics of it, he can't focus on the law, is that Trump's also overbroad in saying, I'm producing no documents. I'm not going to cooperate at all. You know, you can't say blanket executive privilege. You know, the triple own letter is much better than and, and actually quite different than what Trump is saying. You know, the triple own letter is a traditional lawyer's letter. Well, yeah. there's some categories we're not going to provide. There are a lot of categories they will provide, right? You know, the you well, know, have the, provided, uh, about, yeah, and have provided, right? The Mueller report itself. But if you look at the letter, there's going to be some things in the Mueller investigation which they probably would turn over because they don't involve these areas of executive privilege. So that's why I mean, like, that's why you have the usually the negotiation process is both branches could probably yes. agree on some set which should be turned over. But Nadler is going too far, but so's Trump. Well, so we Trump, Trump makes it more likely he's. I mean, Trump will lose if he says I'm not. I don't have to turn over any pages, which he keeps saying in his tweets and in public. But we we know yeah. who is the president's own worst enemy, John. <laughs> let, let me give you guys other than you, Richard. Who no, called for I mean, his resi- the, after I, called for his resignation on the first day. On the first day. Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, I have changed my mind. Um, he just, I mean, he has a winning hand, and you know, this is a guy who manages to blow it. And so the great <laughs> question is going to be whether or not he continues to do this, or whether he's going to let the first class legal staff that he has do it. So you notice, I didn't talk about Trump. I talked about the letter. And what's my view about it? The tweets are not what is going to shape the negotiations with Congress or the litigation. The president is always off the top. You remember, he was going to start at the Supreme Court, this master of appellate jurisdiction within the federal <laughs> system. I mean, he's such, if impeachment he's such, was brought, right? He was going to go straight to the Supreme Court. Being, I mean, what happens is, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of the president is an embarrassment to his own legal position. There's no other way to say it. Uh, everybody understands that the essential job of being a Trump advisor is to shut him up so you can speak on his behalf. <laughs> and unless he understands that they're right and he's wrong, which he will never do, he will continue to make difficult cases that really ought to be easy. And one of the reasons why Nadler does this is the Democrats love to bait the president. Let me give you guys. Let me give you guys. We should move on from this, but uh, okay. let me give you one question on the way out of it. 
I'll give this to you as a jump ball. Either one of you can take this. John, I'll be interested to I'll be interested to see actually if you guys align on this. So Nadler has been walking around calling this a constitutional crisis. <laughs> And that is a well, that's a phrase that always seems to, at least the past few decades, really get cheapened in American politics. So uh, we don't even have to go into its applicability here. Uh, but I want to know about genuine constitutional crises. When are the moments that you guys would point to in American history where you think it was appropriate to say that our institutions were legitimately hanging in the balance? Well, I think massive resistance might have been one such case. Yeah. The Civil and the Watergate. Wars. Watergate the Watergate tip. Yes. I think you know the Civil War would probably qualify, uh, <laughs> but not this. This is not this. This is so we've got this two. Is a, this, this is, is a just constitutional a, conflict, but it's not a crisis. So we've got two. Is that the authoritative list? It's well, Watergate no, and the Civil mean, War. No, he said no, uh, the resistance. resistance I think yeah, so Watergate maybe, maybe the New Deal crisis in some sense yeah, might have been the court packing plan. I agree. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I mean you know you get this, but but this is a subpoena. It would be a constitutional. Andrew Johnson impeachment. Yes. You know. If, if uh, Nixon's John, Jackson bank veto, maybe. Yeah, yeah. maybe no. Oh, what about Clinton's impeachment? Let's not forget the good old no, 90s no, where uh, no. Troy was watching Sesame Street. <laughs> but that was not a constitutional crisis. A um, court packing is an interesting one. Are we going to sign off? Because that's not stipulated in the Constitution. So would we call it a constitutional crisis? Yes, because it's the whole problem associated with what we call, you know, sort of the implicit Constitution. Um, when the Democrats will not go now saying, well, we've got five Republicans on the court. We take over. We're going to make it an 11-man, 11-woman operation so we could do it 6-5. Uh, that essentially is – tampering with fundamental arrangements. And so there's all these customary ways to fill the interstices of the Constitution. They're extremely powerful and well understood. And if somebody wants unilaterally to break them, there's a trouble. So with executive privilege, it would be a constitutional crisis if one of two things happened. Uh, the court basically vindicates uh, Nadler on some issue and Trump refuses to follow its order. He says, you know, the Supreme Court has issued its order, let it enforce it. We're in deep trouble. Or the other thing that happens to go with this thing is Trump wins everything in the court and Nadler then has the gendarmes at the Congress or uh, arrest uh, Bill Barr in his home. You know, those two things would qualify. This is just <laughs> a, this is a legal fight. I mean, Nadler wants to do this because they're trying to ramp about, up yeah. the, the force for the next election. Uh, but the Democrats are completely debased currency. Uh, I'm certainly happy to say all sorts of things about Trump. But one of the things that's so clear is that nothing that the Republicans have said in the House of Representatives or the Senate come close to this sort of systematic lunacy of the daily pronouncements by one another members of the Democratic Party. I, I regard these people as the most frightening people on the face of the earth because, I mean, if you take their social prescriptions and their financial and – Richard, And Richard's in Chicago right now. <laughs> no, Chicago. I mean, no, no, Chicago is – Chicago is the kind of – there are two kinds of Democrats. I think it's fair to say. I think they're the firebrands and I think they're many of the people who won perfectly legitimate hard-fought battles against the Republicans in New Jersey and so forth places not doing this. Um, they've – I would say the majority of the Democratic group is not in favor of Medicare for all. They're not in favor of the Green New Deal. They're not in favor of a $500 an hour minimum wage law or $15 or whatever it is. I think what they want to do is they're kind of incrementalist and Nancy Pelosi on some issue sides with them. Then she goes off and calls the president a criminal. Then she's in favor of the Equality Act and so forth. Uh, the woman is very unstable on these things. But the Republicans have no initiatives, which I regard as a positive virtue, when the initiative that the Democrats have are positively insane. All right, fellas, we have to pause here for a word from our sponsors at Lending Club. If you're carrying revolving debt, if you're like John and you're spending a lot of time at the track, that means you're not paying off your card every month and could be paying thousands in interest every year that you don't have to. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself and how much you want to borrow. Pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer -peer lending platform with over $35 billion in loans issued. So how do you do it? 
calm down. I'm going to tell you. Go to lendingclub.com slash law talk. Check your rate in minutes and borrow up to $40,000. That's lendingclub.com slash law talk. Lendingclub.com slash law talk. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, and our thanks to Lending Club for sponsoring. So, fellas, now I have the unfortunate duty of turning us to Mau Mau Watch 2019. I will start here with John because he is our resident Harvard man, and this took place right there in Cambridge. Ronald Sullivan, who's a Harvard law professor and is also the, the something called the faculty dean at Winthrop House, which is one of the undergrad dorms. My see, my you, my actual house. Uh, see, you've already lost me there. I didn't have a faculty dean in college. We got a six pack of Heineken and a pack of Marlboro Reds. Is that was that in college or just yesterday? <laughs> I mean, come anyway. On. Anyway, it could be both. Anyway, Sullivan and his wife have now been ousted from their role in the dorm because the students felt unsafe and the students felt unsafe because Ronald Sullivan is part of the defense team for Harvey Weinstein. Now, John, I'm going to do my best to play devil's advocate here. Let's put aside the breathing into a paper bag version of the objections to Sullivan because there's a lot of that unsafe language floating around out there. It is possible, I think, to be a sensible, temperate, well-adjusted person and feel like representing Harvey Weinstein is, to use a term of art, objectively icky. And <laughs> maybe maybe that's why I don't want this person to be in loco parentis in my dorm. That argument persuades you at all? <laughs> so can I can I advise, provide some context here? Sure. Sure. Go right I mean, ahead, John. But I, but I, yeah. So this Harvard, first of all, they're not deans. Okay. I lived in Winthrop House when I was in college. This is sort of like a glorified RA, right? Like this is kind of like each house, these houses, they're basically dorms. They're not really like Oxford, Cambridge colleges, which was a hope. So each these, house, these are gradations that are lost on me, but fine. Yeah. Okay. So basically treat it like, you know, you're wherever, I don't know where you went, Troy, but I know wherever it was, it was a party college. Okay. It was, it was one of the top fun at school that, yeah. Yeah, that month. So that year. So um, these are basically like every one of these giant dorms, which has a few hundred students living in them, has to have a faculty member living there. So uh, it's like, in this, as in this case, it's a husband. That wife, sounds hellish. Yeah, I don't know why they want to do it. I guess they get – well, they get free housing and free food, but it's Harvard dorm food. So I don't know if it's a plus or minus. Anyway, so it's not like it, – like the word dean makes it sound like it's an important academic job. It, it's not. They're just like – they're like permanent RAs. I think it's a terrible job. I don't know why anyone would not want to do it. Yeah. So you have like in the three years I lived in Winthrop House, I think I talked to to call them house masters because it, now they change them to deans because masters sounds racist somehow. I sexist, sexist. Oh, racist too. Master in my college once, once in three years. So they don't play really much in the life of, you know, the other average undergraduate. On the other hand, I don't think that. Uh, people should be eligible for these jobs or not based on their ideological views. So if Sullivan has been fired because he has an unpopular client, I, you know, and it, he's not, it's not even that it's his own free speech view, first amendment view that whatever Weinstein has done is right or wrong, but he's just saying so, everybody has a right to due process, uh, which is in the Bill of Rights, then I think Harvard has made a terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, so that, but sorry for going on so far, long about the you context. Long, John, you have not gone on long enough. Well, you ask a Harvard man about Harvard <laughs> and what the hell do you think you're going to get? <laughs> you know what they, the old joke about Harvard? I will exempt you from it. You could always tell a Harvard man, but you can't tell him much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is one of the lines. I, but look, I like, regard this as an embarrassment. Uh, yeah. You know, he also represented Michael Brown. And Michael Brown got a settlement when the Justice Department report made it quite clear that the homicide was justifiable. Uh, so the settlement should have been zero. So now a conservative Republican says, I think Ronald Sullivan should be out at Winthrop House because I cannot work with a man who essentially is going to assist in to foment race riots. 
in Fergus. Well, I would regard that as every bit as preposterous. And, and the difficulty about this is it's not just that sensitivities ought not to matter uh, when you're trying to decide institutional arrangements. What makes this work is only selective sensitivities matter. So people who have opposite views and object to him on other grounds are to be silenced. And he, of course, is going to be silenced when it turns out that people who agree with the central administration do it. Uh, the leadership in the Harvard College, the dean and everybody else there, is I regard as cosmically inept in terms of the way in which they do all of these things. And I thought Randy Kennedy, um, a thoughtful man and a decent man and a smart Harvard professor, said you know, he just was appalled about this. Lots of people in the law school were appalled about it. What it does, in effect, is it indicates that there's a certain degree of intellectual cowardice, which is built into the very fabric of the Harvard undergraduate system. This is no different, as far as I'm concerned, from their silly rules, which says that you cannot have these final houses on sex-segregated bases off campus. And then the sanction that they're going to do, if you try to have one, is that you cannot be the head of a single-sex athletic team. It's a kind of a joke. I mean, obviously, some social arrangements should be uh, co-ed, some should be separate, some all men, some all women. Uh, people can join different kinds of groups. And when you start having a head of a Harvard understanding so little about social relationships, it gives you no confidence in the university. I think at this level, Harvard is a moral disgrace in terms of the way in which it projects its image to the world at large. And the saddest thing to me is to see the very high return acceptance that it gets let me let me let me stick up for harvard here no. at one oh at one level which is it's not like they're worse than anybody else that's the best defense I no no up. i think they right? are they're, they're the lead and, that, look, and not well, only this that is like kind of ideological discrimination is going on throughout academia are there any university presidents at any of the major colleges universities who doesn't think affirmative action is a moral imperative is there anyone right like there's it's just that it's it's gone to the level of faculty members who are basically head RAs of colleges, you know, of college dorms. That's how I think insidious, but also it's spread throughout the university system. How bad ideological discrimination is now? I, that's that's the thing that doesn't surprise me. I'm actually not. I am disappointed at Harvard. I am not at all surprised that they did this. Because this would happen at any number of other colleges and universities no, now, not John, just little jobs like this, but much more important jobs like university presidents, deans, appointments. Right? I mean, that's that's what's so sad about it. I think. Well, let me mention the following thing. I agree with you that American universities are way over the top in terms of their affection. I have always defended affirmative action on one condition: that I run the program. Uh, because I'm much. Well, that's, that's your condition on almost every piece. Of it is, but I, now I will explain why. I, I mean, this is a half joke. Is that what's really at stake? Is how far you go with a program like that? So many of these things are really questions of proportion and degree. And what Harvard lacks is proportion and a sense of degree. I'll give you a contrast. I will not use NYU, Chicago, or Stanford, where I have some affiliation. But take Princeton. They had a very similar situation with respect to Woodrow Wilson segregation and the Woodrow Wilson School. And the president of Princeton is a guy named Chris Eisgruber, who was actually my student at the University of Chicago Law School. And somehow or other, they managed to keep Woodrow Wilson's name on the building, and they managed to, to prevent the place from going up. Why was that? Because they had a reasonably steady hand. They put the right people together on the various committees. They had a process that seems to work. And you didn't get the kind of thing that happened with the Christakis at Yale with Peter Salve, who's one of the worst university presidents on earth. And you didn't have the kind of stuff that took place at Harvard. The Harvard situation, of course, doesn't seem to implicate the president at this point, which is both a good and a bad thing. So I think that there are, are serious degrees on, on this stuff. And I think Harvard is at the worst. I can't think of a Princeton scandal to take a school I have no affiliations with whatsoever, which comes to the level of some of the stuff that Harvard has had. The Asian exclusion issue, terribly botched from one end to another. This particular issue, the finals club, they really are going out for it. And, and whatever the name of the dean of the college is, I repress it. I mean, he's so adamant on all of these things that you know that people who disagree with him will not get an audience to speak. So I think there's a huge difference between defenders of affirmative of action who are willing to listen to the other side and to moderate their particular demands and those people who simply regard anybody who disagrees with them as crabgrass on the lawns of academia. 
to be uh, written away with the most powerful pesticide that you can find. The shame about the Princeton situation, of course, is there's so many other good reasons to get rid of Woodrow Wilson's name. Oh, right, yes. I mean, oh, don't get me started. I can't, uh, actually, because we, we have to. John is, is chomping at the bit here. He's, he's got to go. But I have to get you guys to something before we're done because we've got bills to pay just like everybody else, which is why our final topic for the day has to be the most burning con law issue of our time, toplessness. Now, since John frequently teaches topless, I'll start with him. There is now what looks to be an emerging circuit split on whether statutes that prohibit public toplessness for women are equal protection violations because, of course, the same restrictions, unfortunately, would not apply to men being topless. Uh, the Eighth Circuit is saying, no, it's not a problem. The Tenth Circuit saying, hell yeah, it's an equal protection violation. And uh, our producer would probably be furious with me if I didn't note that this is the product of an advocacy group called Free the Nipple, which one assumes <laughs> really? is staffed by a group of very Free conscientious 16-year-old boys. Uh, John, how about this? Uh, Same body part, very different cultural valence. Ought that matter to the courts? Well, what I, I what I want to know is who's representing the bottomless people. No, you don't. The toplessness only. Why not? I mean, you know, this is. I mean, in Berkeley, we had the naked guy, right? The student who showed up all the time, the class naked, and the stu- the university couldn't figure out a way to get rid of him. Wait, is this but true? I, look, I, you know, the thing is, uh, this might be an area where. Uh, gender discrimination is permitted, right? Gender discrimination, not the same level as race and religious discrimination. It's still, at least doctrinally, in intermediate scrutiny, there is this idea that, uh, you know, important government interests might be, that might allow distinctions based on gender, you know, like separate bathrooms and so on. And so this might be one of those areas where you could see the court saying, look, by tradition, history, public order, whatever, uh, cities and states that want to uh, restrict women from being topless in public still uh, can do so. But let's just be clear. For me personally, as a judge, I would say uh, these kinds of laws discriminate against women and everyone should be allowed to be topless. Although then I, I have a hard time distinguishing why people can't be bottomless too. Well, John, I thought you were going to say that, like Richard, you want this system only if you can determine who the law applies to. <laughs> no, no, I, I, look, my view no, about this. Let Richard make the decisions on this one. Okay, I, I, I will give you. I, I shudder to think what the outcome. I, th- I think it. there's a perfectly no. sensible way to handle this. Um, you know, if you want to go to a nudist colony, I think that if there is a system of public beaches and five percent of your population determines to have nudist colony, to say that it's banned all the way across the beach would, I think, be overbroad, and that you should put up a sign somewhere and say. All of you who enter here understand that you can be naked and maybe even say must be naked, and then that's fine. But the other 95% are not done. Uh, but I, I think you are beyond obtuse if you think that the uh, sexual orientation associated with nipples and breasts are the same for men and for women. Um, you have to be born on the planet Mars to believe that. And so the reason why it is that sex discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause is much more difficult than it is for race is that there are many more judges justifications for sex differences than there are for race differences. So I don't think we really want to have a situation where we uh, say that blacks and whites can't play football together if they're all men. But on the other hand, suppose we were to say that we don't believe in sex differences and we abolish all female teams. I think this would be one of the great tragedies. And in fact, one of the tragedies that we see now is the Equality Act seems to say that gender identity allows any man to run in any female race if he wants to call himself a woman that day or even think that that is going on. And so I basically believe viva la difference. I think it's extremely important uh, both for men and for women that we do these things correctly. And if there has been a long-standing social practice with clear, obvious reasons uh, for putting into place we don't want to get 16-year-old boys excited in high school classes or whatever it is. I think, in effect, that you simply accept this sort of stuff. I cannot think of a single invidious consequence that follows uh, from having a recognition that anatomy differences matter. In fact, if you spend any time with the sociobiology, you realize that the fundamental difference between eggs and sperm drives all sorts of profound, enduring 
um, differences in terms of sexual behavior between males and females amongst human beings and every other species on the face of the globe. And if you really think the Equal Protection Clause was designed to say, ignore all of that stuff, uh, then I think you're attributing madness to the people in 1865 who would have thought exactly the opposite. Remember, there is a provision of the 14th Amendment which refers to male inhabitants when they're doing apportionment. They understood the importance of sex difference. They knew that the race case was very different different. And I think these judges are engaged in a willful form of ignorance when they start to push this on there. It's part of the loopiness. I think it's indefensible as a political matter, and I think it's doubly so as a constitutional one. I do not speak from experience here, but I've got to imagine that there is a real Gresham's Law problem with nudist colonies. I'll let our listeners Wikipedia that one. All right, fellas, that is our show. Gentlemen, thank you as always. Thank you to our producer, Scott Immergut, our sponsors at Lending Club, and of course, Thanks to our great listeners, as well as the three guys who just fast forward trying to find Roman law references. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. We'll see you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Mom's got a squeeze box she wears on her chest. But when daddy comes home, he never gets no rest. Cause she's playing all night. And the music's on. Escape from the music in the whole damn street Cause she's playing all night And the music's alright Mama's got a squeeze box Daddy never sleeps at night Ricochet Join the conversation